So the, the big takeaway, and I quote, prices move because people do things independently of fundamental value. It's true. Yeah. But you need a 120 page paper in economics to get to, yeah. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Whoa, you look so happy. I'm always happy. This is my happy face. It's my, uh, my Roy Kent happy face. You look tired, man. Do I? Yeah. I got like five hours of sleep. I got up at like 3.45 and I was like, it's, I guess it's time. <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what else to do with myself. That's just not good, man. Don't do no, that. I know what to do. Go back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> you always have thoughts. I ch- do I ever? Buy companies with limited downside. Get sleep. That's why. It's like all these yeah. like, I don't know. I really controversial. Oh, man. How are you? Uh, you know that um, people marry people with similar IQs. It's like a proven thing. If you're dumb, you marry someone <laughs> dumb. If you're smart, you marry someone smart. Okay, first of all, like, there's so much to do with that. <laughs> like, <laughs> It would make sense to me that within a given range, that is likely true. It also makes sense to me that the majority of people are within given ranges oh you're just saying everyone's average so it works out no i'm just saying it it has to be a range to be true there's only like the exact same key point okay that's not true (laughs) like that actually that that is not true yeah i did hear that uh this week i thought it was pretty interesting i also heard that uh genetics drives everything and as parents there's like no reason to parent so uh, that's my new philosophy you started this whole thing off with fantastic advice get sleep now you're just like spewing. No, that was like some you kind of... Did you know they can predict kids' achievement by looking at their DNA achievement in school? No, they can't. Yeah, they can't. Boom. Done. No. Argument one. See you later. No, it's it. That is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're you're telling what you're telling me. What you're telling me is you're gonna take apart the country in which they're born, the circumstances and economics in which they're born. Like all of that and just look at your DNA and be able to tell what you're achieving in school. You can't even look at someone's DNA and tell whether or not they're going to go to school, like let alone <laughs> whether or not they will do well in school. <laughs> yeah, well, so this kid's going to fall off a cliff at age four, so he's never going to achieve. So what does DNA tell you, right? <laughs> no, um, I guess that's, I guess you could make it into a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. You could just yeah, say, yeah. yeah, my kid's not going to do anything, so I'm not even going to send him to school. Like, there's no point. So there's, I like um, that. I'll say I might send you an interesting podcast. I'm not claiming that any of it is this black and white, but genetics appear to drive a lot of like the natural tendencies and aptitude that come with maybe even the majority of life's things. And that's super interesting to me. Where I would probably agree non-scientifically is that genetics drives ceiling. However, Uh, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot that influences how close you can get to your ceiling, like how much you can achieve of your capability based on your circumstances and the systems in which, in the environment in which you operate. 
You know, I feel really blessed that you gave me that breakdown since you're a doctor who studied genetics. No, because I'm not taking this from the genetics lens because I'm taking the opposite lens. It's saying that you could have the best genetics in the world. And if you were born in Rwanda in the middle of genocide, like it's actually not going to dictate your life achievement. Like that, that's what I'm saying. But your, your genetics might say if you had the right advisors and mentors, the right systems, if you were born in the right circumstances, this is what you could achieve. But genetics can't say what you will achieve. Like that, that's, that's my, that's my broader. Oh, no, nothing can say what you will achieve. That's predicting the future. I mean, I, I, yeah, of course. But that's what you just said like a second ago. <laughs> you, you made me get high decibels up in here. Can I give a special shout out to our content producer who's just been nailing things, man. This week, oh. big stories, inflation, Kyrie, what else? We nailed it all. The content producer is just amazing on the show. Earning the every show. dollar. Earning yeah, every dollar. Exactly. All right. I'm, can we, can we? start this thing off on a happy note for once in my life can i start off on a happy note yeah but happies to you happy to you is like a 99 page research paper that no one else even reads no no so. no you you are stereotyping me i feel like and like you're <laughs> pigeonholing me no i'm gonna start off talking about debt okay is it like paying off debt the happy side of things ha- happy is as happy does right <laughs> there was this tweet that i saw early this morning it just made me crack up and maybe, and so that, that's the happy part of it. The other part of it is, I mean, maybe not so happy because that cannot be happy, but basically I'll get to the tweet last so that we can end with a, sure. the, the bucket of joy. We have discussed here that there's debt everywhere. Corporations are in debt. Yeah. The government's in debt. Americans, the American citizens are in debt. There's $14.88 trillion in consumer debt. If people didn't know, um, quick quiz, which generation has the most debt per capita right now. Uh, what's like the folks in their 50s right now? Is that Gen X? I'm going to go yeah, Gen, X. Gen X. Gen yeah. X. Gen X. $140,000 in debt. A little bit over. $140,000 in debt. Gen X. So we're in a heck of a lot of debt. Here's the tweet, though, that I saw. So Paul Graham sent this out. He is a co-founder of Y Combinator. Paul Graham. Yeah, Paul G, my boy. Yeah. There you go. The tweet says, and it's a quote. It's just like real life. You have crushing debt you can never repay. End quote. Guess who said it? You have crushing debt you can never repay? Is the quote? I have no idea. All right. God? Jesus? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, the the joy of this quote is that it was his nine-year-old talking about Animal Crossing. (laughs) It's just like real life. You have crushing debt you can never repay. (laughs) I read and, that. And, it's awesome. And, and and Paul G is a person that does not have crushing debt that he can never repay. I'm just yeah. going to go out on a limb and guess after some of his equity payouts. Yeah, one of the uh, um, one of the responses to it was, why don't you just repay it for him? Yeah, seriously. The other tweet, well, I'm talking about a tweet. I think I said this your way. Um, it said, hey, Dave Ramsey, are you still recommending that people pay down their mortgage when... Their mortgage is at 3% and current uh, inflation is at 5%. It made me laugh. I haven't decided if I'm going to pick a fight with Dave Ramsey yet or not on the pod. Just Because I see his it. tactics, man. He it's, might it's kill not, me. It's, like, <laughs> it's not worth it. Between you're going to have Dave slash Gordon Ramsey on one side <laughs> and China. Like G is going to be on the other up, side. Like living in Antarctica or wherever Snowden <laughs> is. Just because oh, I goodness. had a few thoughts about finance. It's fun. I like that. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk listener mail, man. I think we got two great 
articles um, from listeners this week. I want to start with one that came in from Kyle, who's really my boy. Kyle and I get way back. He sent over this article in the New York Times. This is one of those, guys, if you're on the fence about paying for journalism, like this article to me was worth the cost of subscription to the New York Times for like three months because it's just really well done. It's by Connor Daughtry, who's based out of the Bay Area, called Where the Suburbs End, about California real estate. Uh, Dougal, so you can make it through this one. I did. I did. Spit on it. So I know you used to live in California. I'm curious for your initial reactions before I dive into the facts. All I can say is when the mention of the unaffordable housing crisis right, came up a bunch, when I was in, so I was in San Francisco specifically, we rented our 750 square foot two bedroom apartment, couldn't afford to buy that and wouldn't have bought it. Yeah. If we could afford to buy it like that was that's yeah. kind of like the the summary. And this was years ago. And so on the other side of the pandemic or the other side of the, the crisis, right, that was in the pandemic. I'm not sure where things are, but that about sums it up. No, and that's kind of the background, right? It's in my experience, it's like really educated uh, with it. Folks often get pressed out of communities that just it seems crazy. It seems like there's a crazy disconnect. I have family over there who used to live in San Francisco, ended up moving all the way to Fresno to get a house and a yard that they think is, like, I know, right? That's like a three hour drive for those who don't know. Yeah, you got to do it's what you got to do. totally different community, totally different place. Um, and, and that's happened all over the place. So Governor Newsom has been working on this, I don't know, for this conversation, let's call it a, a housing crisis, right? And the way they chose to solve it or attempt to solve it is with ADUs, uh, which are basically backyard units that you can throw in any suburban backyard and make another house out of it. And there's a lot of arguments for um, some of it is mother-in-law suite or, you know, if the kids are ready to move out, but they can't afford to your point, you know, they can't afford a million dollar home because they're in their early 20s or whatever. So they signed a state bill. I think it's called SB9. Is that right, Douglas? SB9. That Sounds basically right. statewide uh, makes it legal to put backyard units in all suburban homes. So they, they kind of overrode the city ordinances that used to make this extremely more challenging and went for it. The, the interesting thing about this, potentially on the positive side, this has paved the way for some 2.5 million new housing units, which is about 25 years of the state supply at current building pace. So, so they went from saying, we're going to have struggles with building new homes, and it might not be solvable for decades, to going, hey, within the next three years, we, we can easily build and install and permit 25 years worth of inventory. Wow. Now, what comes with this is all the dynamics of, well, my suburban home, you know, like I'm not in favor of that uh, because yeah. it's going to change the dynamic. What about parking? What about infrastructure? What about everything else? Yeah. And the personal, also, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. the personal stories they put in there around that, he, it was so well written the way that, oh, uh, that really he good. weaved in the personal stories about the, the woman that like grew up in the house and now lives across the street and all, all that. It was really well written. Yeah, I want to uh, pull this quote. So housing politics is by or is nonpartisan. The term NIMBY, which is N-I-M, 
B-Y, short for not in my backyard, right? Can't you relate to that? It's like, oh, I understand that there's an affordability crisis or a housing crisis. And if people outside of my neighborhood want to solve this, by all means. But when the politics shows up in my neighbor's backyard, and that means I have more cars parked on my street, like it becomes a, I don't care if I'm red or blue. I don't like change. Yeah, people are nimby all over the place, right? It's kind of like the uh, people that are, I'm all for higher taxes on the wealthy, all that. But whole bunch, but like, but can you wait well, until my after taxes? my, yeah, after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just hold up on that? <laughs> I love that. Nimby everywhere. So let me give you a few more facts. And then if this is interesting, we can continue the debate. If not, we'll move on, right? So specifically details a neighborhood called uh, Claremont Village outside of San Diego, built in the 50s, right? When this was built, the median income to afford the $82 monthly payment was the very definition of middle class. Like this is as middle class as it gets, right? Plumbers to doctors to, you know, like it's a diverse neighborhood. Um, today, those same homes cost about um, 850,000, which is up 30% just in the past two years. And you would have to make about double the median income in San Diego to afford one of those homes. So same neighborhood, not, not particularly like nice or mansions. The definition of middle class when it was built has now gone to something that's double the definition of middle class to afford the payment. And a lot of that speaks to the housing shortage in my eyes. And what it's done to housing prices in California, but you see this other places in the states, right? There was one thing. This is not what the article is about, but it was something that was traveling through my head as I was reading about this. Is that that 1950s housing boom? So the post World War II like housing boom, effectively that happened in the U.S., which was a lot of government sponsorship that went behind it, created an enormous amount of wealth from like home equity. For people for homeowners in the country yeah except it was largely targeted for the like white population of the us and so yeah. what was well, what was going through my my head as i was reading this is from the perspectives that were in this article like i, I fully understand it and then i was also thinking that there's there's this double maybe triple quadruple whammy quintuple because i just keep going up sextuple whammy uh that happens which is there were the folks that were left out of that initial boom. Plus now you have the housing crisis. For these folks, there's NIMBY. And then for these other folks that are like, can I have a backyard? Uh, Kihimbi? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can. <laughs> I can't, can't. <laughs> too much. Too That's much. way too much, but it's funny. Okay, so then... Yeah, I hear you, right? And it's that's in a way happening today in terms of... If you're in a hot real estate market, you either have owned a home and you're riding that wave or you haven't and you're just you've just missed out. And it's it's terrible. And that's all associated to this supply crunch. Here's what's happening on the developer side that I think is interesting. Then we'll put a bow on this. So they profile a guy that's been flipping homes in this environment. Right. So he buys a home in that neighborhood. He pays 700 K. Uh, it's the estimate that the current rental he could pull from that is a little over three grand, which basically pays the mortgage, right? What he's going to do is spend an additional 400K building new units and splitting the house so it's set up to rent. 
And then he's going to command somewhere between 9000 and 10000 a month in rent, which makes the property worth the equivalent of $1.7 million, obviously increasing the population density on that lot by three to four times. So he now has a very easy way to turn this suburban family home into almost a rental complex and make, I mean, you do the quick math there, he should be up 600 k if his math is right here, even if he wants to sell the thing, because he buys a home and he sells a rental unit of four properties. And again, I see both sides in terms of how that's better for the community and how that would absolutely drive the neighbors insane. It's a, this is not a simple problem. Like it's, it's a, it's really complex. The, the supply, if you abstract everything out, the supply situation in California is absolutely real. And so, yeah. and I think what the, what the government is basically saying is we're just focusing on that. Like that's a real thing and there are going to be consequences from this, but we gotta, we gotta settle that. But when you get down to the micro level, the neighborhood level, the NIMBY level, it's, it feels real, right? Those are, those emotions are legit and valid. I mean, I found myself being able to follow the logic pretty clearly, which I think means as much as this gives me some heartburn, I think it might be the right decision. Where, do, if, if I'm going to put you on the spot, like, is this the right approach for the state? I don't know enough detail about all the different like micro situations, but in the, at the high level, we have to solve this supply issue. Like that, yeah. that, that's what I would say. And I'm going to, this isn't necessarily all this right thing to do, but I'll say that there are many more people that have studied this, talked to economists and looked at the different solutions and what seemed like it could politically get through was this. And so if it solves the supply issue, I think we got to yeah. do it. And yeah. sorry for your nostalgia. <laughs> you should be sorry. All right. You want to talk shadow inflation or you want to continue to live in California? <laughs> Let's do shadow inflation. I thought this was real. It's a, it's a nice little fishbowl topic there. Yeah, so this was another like just really well done piece of literature this week. Uh, Neil Irwin in the New York Times um, specifically talked about uh, some of the challenges with how we measure inflation and how even if the price doesn't go up, inflation can be happening right before your eyes. He specifically talks about like a restaurant that might not raise their prices, but might previously they'd have five waiters and waitresses and now they have three and the level of service sucks that that's happened to me recently like i can relate to that uh we talked about it he, a few episodes back yeah right i just thought this was so smart and like such a good point and so even if you know cpi numbers came out this week and everyone freaked out because it looks like inflation is humping around five percent which is historically high based on the recent past there's some specific numbers on some of the things driving those. So like gasoline's up 42% over the past year. Used cars are up 24%. Meat is up 10%. Electricity is up 5%. You know, on it goes, right? But the fact that those numbers could very reasonably be understated based on other tactics that businesses are doing to reduce costs without necessarily raising prices was just a little bit of an aha moment for me. And I loved the way he broke this down. Yeah. I also find this to be an interesting topic. One thing that I'll, that I'll extend onto it is that the quality issue at its core is what makes inflation such a question or one of the things that makes inflation such a question mark to begin with. 
right? It's when people are discussing, this is the shadow inflation side saying that there is inflation that we're not even counting because of what you just described. There's the other side of it that says the way that we measure inflation with prices isn't right in the first place because you yeah. can't account for the increased standard of living that it provides, the better technology. The I think what's mentioned in this article at one point is uh, like software bugs are, have lessened, right? Things like that is where it's hard to measure inflation to begin with because you don't know what you're paying for. If you just mm-hmm. look at the price, this, is, this, this gets to uh, maybe I'm going to make an extension to value investing too. Shoot. If you just look at the price of the thing and measure the price change, what does that tell you? Right. You have to look at at what you're buying as well. Do you see you see what I did there? Wow. Wow. Nice work. (laughs) Just throwing some shade. Just oh, hey, here's a chance to throw some shade. (laughs) But there uh, one of the one of the things I'll pull from this is it mentions that uh, the BLS, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, which generates the uh, CPI, right, in inflation index. Um, they don't incorporate quality adjustment on it says 237 out of the 273 components that go into the index, which yeah. is the vast majority of services. Basically, you can just say if it's that percent, you just don't. Quality is not a quality is not a thing. It, it's funny because the breakdown uh, from one of the experts interviewed here was that he was previously kind of screaming from the rooftops like it's understated because of the software bugs thing. He's like, you're still paying a hundred bucks a year for the Microsoft product, but the Microsoft product is so much better than when you were paying a hundred bucks for a year, like 10 years ago. That was an interesting, again, just thought experiment. And now he's kind of flipped and said, now quality is eroding significantly, even if prices aren't rising and it's um, understated, which is- Exactly. We just can't measure inflation. Is the, that's the- yeah, uh, right. <laughs> That's the takeaway. Yeah, I found this to okay. be, I, I found it to be pretty, pretty interesting uh, as well, because I hadn't thought about some of the items like uh, some hotels not offering daily cleaning services anymore, like all that. But it does. It touches on the on the daily. You see it. Yeah. Right. They're not fixing really the windows does. in your Dollar Tree. We have more listener mail and it's also right. in California. How about you break this one down for us? A lot of California listener mail. Yeah. So this one, this listener mail comes from Elliot and it's talking about PG&E. Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the utility for Northern, the biggest utility in Northern California. Disclaimer, Dougal's is a shareholder of PG&E. So disclaimer. Uh, but it would, disclaimer, Dougal's is a heartless individual that wants, uh, <laughs> wants former employees of PG&E to suffer. Is that what you just said? Disclaimer, Dougal's just lost a lot of respect for Skippy. <laughs> so now, now we're done with the disclaimers. Um, so a little little bit of backstory as we go into into this story. Um, so PG&E went bankrupt, not for the first time either, but PG&E entered into bankruptcy. And then as they were figuring out in bankruptcy court how they can come out, one of the things they did was they got a guarantee from hedge funds as they were merging out of bankruptcy. So they gave the hedge funds 169 million shares in the company in exchange for a promise from the hedge funds that they would buy more if no one else did. Yep. This is known as an equity backstop. I know you got feelings for the equity backstop, but this is known as an equity backstop. But what ended up happening is they emerge, right? The stock uh, gets listed again and the hedge funds didn't end up buying more. They didn't need to. Yeah. What they actually, what's actually happened is the hedge funds have dumped two thirds of their holdings since they've emerged. And so, 
by itself, if you just take all that stuff, if that was the story, like company, generic company goes bankrupt, needs an equity backstop, comes back out. You can have your feelings and equity backstops, but like not necessarily a big deal. However, what's happened is like the painful part and the human part of this is that the, um, the settlement with the fire survivors for PG&E, they were also provided right, a certain dollar figure. I can't remember what it was, but it was billions of dollars of PG&E stock. So they're provided. These 70,000 people were provided this. But the hedge fund sell-off has put downward pressure on PG&E shares, which has then made it so their shares aren't worth what they were promised in the settlement. So you have these fire, yeah. fire survivors that are losing out. Yeah, right. So the fire victims were given 480 million shares and they were promised a price, which is interesting. Some of this, I was curious about the legal representation for the fire victims because they made some poor decisions, I think. And so, yes, if you, I think the article is written with that tilt and that's not necessarily a bad tilt of like, look at these unforeseen consequences to the fire victims and, and how shameful is that? And I, I can get on board with that. But there's also this risk component that comes with bankruptcy and high finance that is just kind of realistic here. So I didn't end up walking away. I end up walking. I walked away feeling sorry for the fire victims, but not really feeling like the private equity firms have done anything wrong. So p and is in a very difficult situation where they need to raise billions of dollars. They need to be guaranteed that billions of dollars are available to them to come out of bankruptcy. Their hands are tied. And they're, that's why, I mean, I'll tell you, it's funny you all own the stock because I was looking at the stock for opportunities like this to see if there was ways to provide financing in a way that was almost a surefire bet, you know, like the value investor philosophy. You'll see uh, Seth, Seth Klarman's Bopost Group is one of the largest private equity firms that jumped in. Well, they're not technically a private equity, but one of the largest financiers that ended up with this equity backstop because it was a no-brainer deal on their end. It was pretty simple to do the math and say the assets that PG&E has available will be worth some time with the right provisions to help reduce the risk for them. And that's exactly what they did. It, it makes sense. I mean, I, I got into PG&E. This is PG&E is not some sort of long-term hold that I have by any means. Yeah. I got in near the end of last summer when I was looking at it, it was like in the high eights. Yep. It had been driven down. And I just said, I want to hold this thing for approximately a year when it gets to, I'll, I'll have a mental sell order, right? Cause you can't have a sell order in a year but of around 12 bucks a share, where else am I going to put my cash? Like that seems fine, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that was kind of like my, my thesis. Things like this for PG&E, and there have also been other, um, no, many things of PG&E over the years, right? Like I don't feel good owning PG&E stock, <laughs> to be honest. It was just one of those things where I kind of looked at it and I was like, well, it looks like a, not quite a no-brainer where I got in, like not the no-brainer that the hedge funds had, but like a reasonable brainer. It's kind of where it's at. A reasonable risk. Yeah, I mean, hedge funds really got a no-brainer. And it's unfortunate that that's impacting things. But if I had billions of dollars or even hundreds of millions of dollars, I would have signed up for this in a heartbeat. Like, this is the type of thing that you can do with $100 million that 
allows that hundred million dollars to go quickly and isn't fair in our capitalistic society, but it's kind of the nature of how this works. Unfortunate. Thank you for the listener mail for both pieces. Uh, good conversation. Appreciate that. Yeah. Can Thanks, I dig guys. in to the fishbowl for a quick hit here? Absolutely. This is going to be a very quick hit, probably, uh, unless you want to go deeper. But um, it's a it's an article reading recommendation for the most part here. Uh, and it came out or blog post more than article. It's something that came out in January of 2021. But I just came across it this past week and thought it was interesting. So I'm going to recommend the read. The title is Bitcoin is a Ponzi. It was written by Jorge uh, Stolfi. And I'm just going to give the, it starts off with the definition of a Ponzi. And then the rest of the post goes into the arguments against the fact that it's a Ponzi. And I just think it's a worthwhile read. That's all. I have no, I'm I'm on no side (laughs) of this. But the way that the post defines a Ponzi says there are five parts to it. One, People, people invest in it because they expect good profits. And two, that expectation is sustained by such profits being paid to those who choose to cash out. However, number three, there is no external source of revenue for those payoffs. Instead, number four, the payoffs come entirely from new investment money, while number five, the operators take away a large portion of this money. Those are the five pieces that were laid out here that said, Bitcoin is a Ponzi. Google it, we'll put it on the, the Twitter as well. It's worth a read, just uh, for academic amusement, if nothing else. So yeah, I think you're trying to get me fired up here. I'm this not, I just... was trying, I, I said quick, <laughs> I, just a reading recommendation. No, well, fired th- up. there's no quick, sorry. This is just more Dougal's hate on crypto. I felt like this guy, I, did, I only skimmed the article because I was bored with it quickly. Um, it, it, it's fascinating, but I felt like he tilted the definition of a Ponzi scheme. And then he had some selected facts. He, he, the fun part is he goes through and says, well, by that definition, um, fiat currency is a Ponzi scheme. And then he says, no, it's, it's created by the government. Blah, blah, blah. So he, he tries to go through this list of frequently asked questions, but I think let's just talk about Bitcoin and nothing else. I think Bitcoin is doing what Bitcoin was established to do. And I don't see that as a Ponzi scheme. The reason transaction fees are high is because Bitcoin really emphasizes decentralization and safety. And you pay a price for those things. And that price is higher as the price rises because as the price rises, there's more reward to stealing the thing. So like, I don't know. I just want to be absolutely clear. So you're saying something is not a Ponzi if it does what it was designed to do. (laughs) Are you trying to twist my words and say that I am saying Bitcoin was designed to be a Ponzi scheme and it's good at being a Ponzi scheme? Let's dive into the fishbowl and go on. I heard what I heard. All right, so then if you want to go down this road, I want to go to an article I just sent your way. I don't think I sent this to you previously. Um, It talks specifically about the Afghanistan economy right now. High level here, and we probably only need to do high level. The Afghanistan economy is in shambles. I met with an executive of a payments company 
who uh, earlier this week, this week they're shutting off all payments to Afghanistan, not surprisingly. That means the U.S. financial system uh, effectively stops working. I mean, there's already been a ton of this that has happened, right? The economy just died. Getting money in and out of that country is crazy. So where did they turn, Douglas? Where did they turn? Andy. <laughs> I mean, they're they're not they don't have the proximity to the US that like El Salvador or some of those other countries had when they informally or formally adopted the US dollar as a currency when their countries uh currency struggled. They've the Afghanistan people have gone to cryptos and and Bitcoin and others. And to me, I'm gonna sound like I don't know, a romantic or something. That's really freaking cool. It's the this technology is providing a little bit of stability um, in terms of the trade of goods. I mean, this is a huge step forward for war torn countries, in my opinion. Skippy crypto bull. Yeah, I <laughs> look. I, I think that uh, I try. I tried to say when I brought up that post that I'm not on either side of this. I think that it's a it's academically amusing. That's what I was saying. I uh, think that you, cryptocurrencies can play a role for for the purpose that you stated. I still think it's academically amusing. You did not say academically amusing. Academically amusing is a different thing. I think it's academically amusing too. You're you're trying to throw some shade there, Douglas. I'm always trying to throw shade. I mean, that's a. <laughs> I will I will hide that shade between behind uh, euphemisms, but I'm always trying to throw shade. Yeah, this is this article. I just skimmed it very quickly here. Yeah. Um, is is well worth a read it's awesome so this is from uh i'll put it on the twitter so yeah, um, the, the thomas reuters foundation yeah like. there we go thank you so in the previous regime in afghanistan and currently women and girls are heavily uh discriminated against and in some places not allowed to get an education have jobs etc cetera, etc cetera. in some cases they're not allowed to receive payments right that all goes out the window with with crypto like so there's some examples here of long ago people switching to crypto to avoid that governance government scrutiny around paying women it's just awesome i, I really liked it um yeah it makes me smile, and there's not much to smile about in Afghanistan. I'm not claiming it's all roses, but it's one piece of the puzzle that hopefully makes life a little easier. Yeah, thanks for sending this, and let's let's definitely put it out. My, I'm going to read it in more detail, but the quick skim, this is good stuff. Cool. What else is in the fishbowl? I enjoyed this Bloomberg Business Week article called "Does New Cash Make Stocks Go Up?" Now, what's behind this article is a 120-page. Uh, economics paper that I have not gotten to. So I'm going to put that out there. But right. boy, gee willikers, I was so excited to get to this this weekend. I, as, you, as you can imagine, anyone would be very excited about it. But I have not, I have not gotten to it yet. Um, so I can only give some of the quick hits that come from the article. What is most fascinating to me is, so the, the core of this is basically that if you put new cash flows into the equities market, into the, into the stock market, it will make prices go up, right? That's that's what they're saying. Okay. Prices going up based on demand is how markets work. I mean, like yeah. the oversimplification, right? Yeah. And so what the thing that like gets me going, and the reason why I think economics is so fascinating, 
is because there are these seemingly like simple questions or statements that everyone would be like, obviously, but economics is so academic <laughs> that you have, you have these like simple statements that I'd be like, you buy stocks, they're probably going to go up. Like if more people bought the stock, it's probably going to go up and you're going to go, well, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but, but you need a 120 page paper because everybody else is going to be pushing back on what's going to come here. And they're going to be pushing back because of your boy, Eugene Fama, because uh, you are a big fan, Chicago huge fan school, of the, of the yeah. efficient market hypothesis. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Eugene Fama and others um, and others came up with the efficient market hypothesis, which is something that Skippy is very, he's not into the efficient market hypothesis. I was giving him a hard time. But basically what it says in the simplest terms is that market prices are always right because they're based on all the information that's available at the time, right? And so the markets are efficient. You can't, there's no arbitrage. You can't take advantage, dot, dot, dot. Like that's kind of what it says. And so the, the big takeaway here is, and I quote, prices move because people do things independently of fundamental value. It's true. Yeah. But you need a 120 page paper in economics to get to, yeah. Right. Yeah, there no. was a. Oh, yeah. Look, I don't want to get, talk about the efficient market hypothesis right now. I mean, it's not. You like, you like oversimplified. No one's claiming it's 100% efficient, but that is the argument for indexing. <laughs> the faces you're making are so great. Yeah. There was this, uh, there was a graph in here in this article. It's a global flows into equity funds. And so it shows the like net inflow, net yeah. outflow. Right, an amount of cash that's going in or being taken out of global equity funds. And this year, 2021, is not comparable to any of the last, at least it went back 20 years um, that they've showed. And so this year, it's showing $750 billion, more or less, in net inflows. The closest before this year, um, according to this graph, is something like $300 billion in net inflows. Um, and that was back in this roughly 2017, it looks like, and 2013, we're kind of like roughly around there. Otherwise, this year, so much. And so one of the things that came up in this article is that this year is uh, academically fascinating because you had all the, like the Reddit, you know, retail trader, yeah. like inflows. And so it's kind of like an ultimate, well, did that impact? Like, let's look at real, real info here. Like, did that impact the price in the markets? Right. And so that's, that was kind of where the, where the article started to go. So this is how you make a bubble, right? We talked about China last week. I, I read some more on on the China real estate bubble this week. And what drove that in a way was they made it, it's not illegal for Chinese citizens to invest outside of the country. Um, it's hard for Chinese citizens to easily invest in equities. And it became a thing where real estate was like, you know, if you had wealth in China, real estate was the investment for the last 15, 20 years. And the only thing that was making a decent return, your saving account had low interest rate, everything else. So it was like, if I have a brain and I have a few hundred K, I'm buying more real estate. And then I'm making a nice return on that. I'm going to buy more real estate. And this, the inflows in real estate made them so they could build a, a replica of Paris that no one lives in because yeah. the money was there. Right. And that's. I think that's happening in equities. I think that's happening in cryptos. I think that's happening in, in a lot of spaces right now. And the, the connection, the correction, whenever it comes, is going to be fascinating to watch. 
it, we'll get to talk more about your favorite topic, which is debt, Beagles. It'll be great. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's just so happy. You know, it just makes people happy. Um, <laughs> all right. What's, what else you got in your fishbowl? That's it, man. All right. Yeah. Well, tell them how to get in touch with us. Hit us up on Twitter at Skippy Doogles. Please give us a review on iTunes. We got some more reviews last week. We appreciate that. It helps more people find the show. And ScoopyDoogles at gmail.com. Keep the listener mail coming. Pretty soon, we're going to have enough listener mail for a listener mail only show, Doogles. I'm excited Ooh, about that. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Peace.